Bibi Fahodie, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. A Bibi Fahodie, this is the African Liberation Media. Today's date is July 5th, 6260. This I have been told. The great Langston Hughes once penned, What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Does it fester like a sore and begin to run? Does it rot like stinky meat or crust over and syrupy like sugary sweet? Maybe it simply sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? Rising expectations and worsening conditions are the precursor to what we hope to be fundamental change. This is the African Liberation Media here with brothers Macaru and Amos. Gentlemen, take it wherever you want to take it. A baby for Hodie African family, another opportunity to come together and discuss Issues currently facing the African world, as Dr. John Henry Clark taught us, all history is a current event. And we also see times when things just come from out of we don't know where that that really have a you know devastating impact on people. We see a lot of our people now operating under extreme duress because of the COVID economy. The black community in the United States is definitely in a depression according to many economists. And we have so many other factors that we are currently dealing with. Plus the you know, ongoing scourge of, of the virus, which uh, a lot of people thought that it would die out in the summer heat. That's not happening because it's exploding in Florida Arizona, Texas, some of the hottest states in the United States. And of course, you know, we're still, you know, dealing with the conditions that that affect our spiritual, psychological and material conditions, including state sponsored violence, vigilante violence. The psychodynamics of black self annihilation in service of white domination. And in the context of violence, I participated in a Save Our Children march this past Friday, organized by sisters Lucille Puckett and Corinne Brown. Corinne is the president of the local chapter of the NAACP. There are probably about 100 people out there. The important thing to me, the reason I wanted to participate is because we have to organize, in my opinion, a mass movement that exceeds the numbers that have been reached by the George Floyd rebellion in order to save our children. Mm. You know, not just from the violence, but from the from the ravages of this system, period, in every in every sense of the word, you know, the cultural aspects, economic, education, political, etc. So, you know, we marched uh, in the heat and it was definitely hot out there on Friday afternoon in Charlotte. We march for all of the children who have been killed, not just in Charlotte, but in the United States. We did have a 14-year-old that was killed in an altercation. 
this past week. And we're trying to we're, we're grappling with all of the reasons why uh, all across the country now it seems that, that we are experiencing a spike in homicides. And this reminds us of what happened after the Ferguson Rebellion in 2014 and the Baltimore Rebellion in 2015, the killing of Michael Brown Jr. and Freddie Gray. We saw a rise in the uh, homicides in a lot of cities in the United States. And one of the things some social scientists attributed to was something they call the Ferguson effect. Okay. The Ferguson effect was simply a situation where the police pulled back from the community. Now, now let's be clear. The African community in the United States has never experienced the human right of public safety. Public safety is a human right. People, citizens, people who live in any country, any community are entitled to public safety. We've never been entitled to that. But what happens in our community when there's a pullback, because we have so many elements in our community that are outside of the normal economy who are, you know, scrappling to, to, to make ends meet. And a lot of these people are involved in uh, illegal activities such as the sale of drugs. And that causes conflict. The same conflicts we saw doing prohibition. You know, the battles in Chicago between Alphonse Capone and George Bugs Moran resulting in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. In 1928 in Chicago, there were 500 murders, white on white mm. violence. So you create the conditions and you get this. And America is, as Dr. Amos Wilson taught us, a crimogenic society, a society which generates crime. That shouldn't surprise anybody because the country is constructed on the foundation of criminality. Come on. Gen the genocide <laughs> of indigenous people, the theft of their land, the theft of African labor, the d physical and cultural destruction of African human beings. I mean, this is what this society is constructed on. And the United States actually teaches its citizens that violence is a proper response when you have a problem. It doesn't hesitate to drop bombs and kill people. So, but what, but, you know, we're trying to understand, you know, exactly what's going on. And we know that, that uh, some of the people being killed in our community, the children we, you know, we see, you know, being killed in places like Chicago, uh, in, you know, here in Charlotte and other places, some of that is a product of what Dr. Wilson called the psychodynamics of black self-annihilation in service of white domination. The easiest way to understand psychodynamics is what Tupac Shakur called thug life. The hate you give little infants, an expletive that starts with F, everybody. The hate you give little infants, Fs, everybody. And that's basically what happens in psychodynamics. And, and hate could be, you know, could come in, 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 in several forms and not just necessarily hatred but neglect abandonment dysfunctional families all of these types of things is producing a particular type of child but we also have uh, as we've seen from the knees on the carotid arteries of our people elijah mcclain george floyd and and we seem to see more and more every day uh you know an officer in miami on a a, a pregnant black woman i mean the absurdity of it is incredible. 
But we also, uh, you know, there is an element that I call there are various elements of what I call the white supremacy dynamic, the social forces of white supremacy. And you have raw elements like Dylan Roof, the Ku Klux Klan, neo-Nazis, and then you have the more sophisticated elements, including the institutionalized elements. We don't know who's committing all this crime and violence in our community, but we know that it is being committed and it will take a mass movement that exceeds the civil rights movement and black power movement combined to get us out of this mess. And it has to be linked globally for African people. So, you know, that's where we are right now in terms of, you know, what's taking place in our community. Uh, there's a, a Jesuit priest out in L.A. who started a, a program called Homeboy Industries. And he said nothing stops a bullet like a job. And we know from the history of the United States, I mean, what got the Irish and the Italians out of, uh, you know, this just the everyday crime, not just necessarily the organized crime, but we know a lot of it was organized, the gangs of New York, et cetera, was employment in the industrial sector. What possibility is there of employment right now for our young people? So this is where we are, you know, just on a national uh, uh, the national average unemployment for black males in the United States is about 30%. So, I mean, this is having a devastating impact on our, on our community, on our lives. It's creating a tremendous amount of stress. And the challenge is, how do we get out of this? Go ahead, brothers. Well, it's obvious that many of the changes that have taken place has come as a result of movements that never achieved formal positions of power, thus the civil rights movement, the Vietnam anti-war movement, suffragist movement, the abolitionist movement. This is one of the reasons why Howard Zinn's book is so important, the Peaceful's History of the United States, written from the perspective of the everyday people ignoring the uh, traditional textbooks that glorify statesmen and the industrialist. You know, suffice it to say, and we said this a couple of weeks ago, people are able to flex themselves, flex their political muscle by way of movement. We are typically misled not only by the white misleadership class, but the black misleadership class as well, to quote Brother Glenn Ford over at Black uh, Agenda Radio. So organization, mobilization, organization is the weapon of the oppressed, as Stokely told us, Dr. Turay. Organization continues your work. Yeah, yeah, speaking of a, a organization, over this past weekend and a lot of social media videos went viral over what happened down in stone mountain georgia in that area where an organization by the name of the nfac marched well i want to say march but they let their position be known on the headquartering grounds of the ku klux klan the whole nine yards and then become the backbone for become the backbone 
for the military for a new black nation. What is the solution to all of this? And that's the last the solution is very simple. We follow a declaration of, of liberation, declaring every African-American descendant of slavery a political prisoner here in the United States and that was affected by the Portuguese slave trade. And then after that, the United States has a choice. Either A, carve us a piece of land out here, we'll take Texas and let us do our own thing, or don't stop us when we exit this out of here and go somewhere where they will give us our own land to build our own nation. What is Thanks. your name and what is the... I'm the official Grandmaster Jay. I created the NFAC. All right, and how long have the organization been in existence? We don't give that information out. Just how we'll tell you this, we're all ex-military. We're all very disciplined. We're all expert shooters. We don't want to talk no more. We don't want to negotiate. We don't want to sing songs. We don't bring signs to a gunfight. We're an eye for an eye organization. So when they decide to act right, we'll decide to act right. And we do it all legally, just like they do. Thank you so much, Thank sir. Thank you Appreciate so much, sir. And it's my first time hearing of these brothers and sisters organization. Um, but from what I heard uh, in looking into some of the statements that were made, uh, they seem to be an organization focused on the liberation of African people, specifically black people, not wanting to include whites and not wanting to include uh, Latinos or any other race because as a people, we are often, um, we are often participating in protests and marches that include people of all different colors and backgrounds. And then in some cases, what happens is as the movement continues to grow, the people of other colors and races and backgrounds take the momentum of the movement and they use that momentum for their own particular benefit. Uh, so we've seen that happen plenty of times in the past. So it's always a good sign to see an organization that takes a, a strong, hard stance against, completely against any type of assimilation uh, from any other group. So, um, you know, I, I can't really speak 100% on, you know, knowing the brothers and sisters that are behind it, but the energy that they came with, I can't say that I support that type of energy and and I think I would also like to see that same also that same energy put forth. We talked about uh, you know the things that's happening in Chicago, the things that's happening in our communities right here in Charlotte and Betty's Ford. I think that we need that same type of energy um, to take to take back our communities as well. Yeah, I would like to see this group, like you said, that I've never heard of. Uh, you know, rather than, and, and I'm sure it was just a symbolic uh, gesture. I don't know that they're actually concerned about dead Confederates carved into uh, Stone Mountain, Georgia, one of, one of the founding places of the Ku Klux Klan, along with Pulaski, Tennessee. But, you know, later for these dead Confederates, man. I mean, really and truly, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall, Jackson, Jefferson Davis, Judah Benjamin, Alexander Stevenson, later for these, you know, dead Confederates. I mean, 
what are y'all gonna take the Washington Monument down? <laughs> I mean, uh, are you are you going to do that? I mean, if you're talking about institutionalized white supremacy, you're talking about the original uh, <laughs> slaveholders of the United States, you know, carrying over from British colonial North America. You gonna take the Washington Monument down? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think. Um, I'm like you almost. I would like to see the energy directed, and the the gun laws in Chicago. I don't. I'm not sure if they would be able to do this, but man, look, the Austin community in Chicago, Englewood. Man, listen, our children are being gunned down. Patrol the streets of Chicago. The police are. Not, they don't. They don't. They don't care. Okay. Patrol the streets of Chicago. Let somebody, let these thugs know. I mean, man, we had this little beautiful little girl. They were having a uh, a family event at at her at her grandmother's house, right? Uh, this uh, on uh, on July the fourth. What's her name? Seven uh, Natalia Wallace. She and a bunch of other kids and other people out playing. Three uh, barbarians pulled up and just opened fire. The girl shot in the forehead. Oh, my God. I think several other people were shot, including apparently the person they were shooting at. Patrol those streets. I, You know, I mean, that's uh, that's all I'm saying. I mean, if you want to be effective, I mean, that, that the hell with Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis. I mean, let's be let's be serious. I mean, what were they anyway, other than losers, right? I mean, what were they anyway? So, uh, but uh, in terms of almost his point, the New York Times pre, uh, produced an article this week called that it was titled "Black Lives Matter May Be the Largest Movement in U.S. History." Now, I take issue with calling this a movement. And I raised the question, I think it's premature to call this spontaneous mobilization a movement. Movements are developed and sustained by organizations working toward specific goals, as Dr. Kwame Ture taught us. Gullah Jack has already quoted this. According to the article, across the United States, there have been more than 4,700 demonstrations or an average of 140 per day since the first protest began in Minneapolis on May 25th, according to a Times analysis, turnout has ranged from dozens to tens of thousands in about 2,500 small towns and large cities. More than 40% of the counties in the United States, at least 1,360, have had a protest. Unlike with past Black Lives Matter protests, nearly 95% of the counties that had a protest recently are majority white, and nearly three-quarters of the counties are more than 75% white. The age group with the largest share of protesters was people under 35, and get this, the income group with the largest share of protesters was those, were those earning more than $150,000. Hmm. So I raised the question, is it possible that the diverse elements we see protesting today are driven by the same goals. Is that possible? You got people with zero income, 
of, of very little out there, people making $7, $8 an hour, whatever the minimum wage is. But the largest share of protesters <coughs> are earning more than 150 What are they out there protesting for? I mean, you know, what, brother. Go ahead. Well, I, I was listening to uh, Brother Ford and Chris Hedges, and of course, uh, Hedges uh, talks about the role of what he describes as the class A intellectuals, those people who have been driven out of the economy, uh, given the reality of um, the COVID situation, uh, student debt, crippling student debt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It seems as if he and Ford were in agreement uh, on this particular point. And we can discuss this and debate it with them if they were here discuss it with each other, uh, they seem to point to the fact that this time around, uh, many of your whites, these declassing intellectuals, are taking leadership from black people. You know, they're, they're uh, hoisting black uh, placards with Black Lives Matter, uh, and they tend to believe that this is significantly different from your time with SNCC, when whites with their uh, traditional arrogance had to be put out by Dr. Ture uh, because of uh, their paternalistic overtures to Africans functioning at the grassroots level. So they, they, they are saying that the white people protesting are being led by black people or they are following black people. Is that what they were saying? Th that's their position. Well, Glenn that's Ford. interesting. I mean, that's go ahead, interesting. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean... That's interesting. Uh, you know, nearly three quarters of the counties are more than 75 percent white. I mean, you know, where they're having these protests. I mean, I listen. I watched all these black people join the Obama coalition, and it was a coalition that, you know, stretched from Wall Street, you know, to no street, right? To the backwoods of Alabama, whatever. Raw sewage. Mm. And I'm saying, there's, there's no way, there's no way that you are part of something that these people, they don't have the same needs or interests that you have. So why, why are they, why are they doing this? I mean, what, what is it that they hope to achieve? Like, Brother Amon said, directed in a specific, you know, uh, to achieve specific objectives that will not affect their, uh, you know, ability to continue to uh, live a life of, you know, uh, wealth, you know, privilege and prestige. I, I just I just have questions. I, I've never seen anything like this in terms of, people making $150,000 having the same goals as people that are struggling, wondering where their next meal is, is going, is coming from. I mean, that I have the utmost respect for Hedges and Ford. And if white people are taking direction from black people, they're not taking direction from black people like Kwame Ray and Fred Hampton. <laughs> That's for sure. So, you know, 
I mean, am I supposed to believe these people? Suddenly a Marilyn Book and David Gilbert, John Brown. I don't it's uh, I, I don't know. That's why I said, is it possible? I'm raising the question. Is it possible that the diverse elements we are that we see protesting today are driven by the same goals? Now, historically, historically, we know that there has never been a mass movement against white supremacy in the white community. Uh, but we have seen some marches in by white people in white communities. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, we have seen some, but we've never seen a mass movement. And so, I mean, what is it that these people, are, what is it that these people actually want? What, what, what are they, what are they trying to achieve? And I always go back to Dr. King when he said, peace is not merely the absence of tension. True peace is the presence of justice. The presence of justice, in my opinion, Rick, you have to have power to enforce true peace or justice. And historically, what the left of center leaning uh, power elite have always wanted is the absence of tension because under the absence of tension, they are able to make massive profits. Under the absence of tension, they've never given a rat's rear end about the presence of justice. Has there been a sea change? I don't know. It's just it defies the logic of white supremacy. Let me just say that. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, We can say that uh, for sure people across the board are in dire straits. Uh, Looking at some numbers today, 43 million people have lost their insurance that are connected to their jobs Clearly, there's a need for fundamental change in, in that respect. Uh, suffice it to say that many of our people in particular are grossly misled if we expect fundamental change to be to take place in the embodiment of a Joe Biden. Biden, he, along with who you refer to as Sick Willie, seized the law and order initiative thrust by the Republican party in order to garner white support. Mm -hmm. You're talking about 50 eligible death penalty crimes increased as a direct result of Biden's political initiatives. Uh, You're talking about the 1994 crime bill. Yes, sir. That's exactly what we're talking about here. Uh, Quadrupling the carceral state, increasing uh, the level of surveillance meted out toward the black community uh, in particular. Uh, I think as these protests continue to take place, you know, we'll be able to uh, make a more accurate assessment, but definitely is a system that warrants monitoring. Uh, there is a growing anti-Trump sentiment that's out there. Could they be motivated by that? I don't know. You know, but well, Trump, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure a lot of them are motivated by that because Trump has created. Trump creates a lot of tension, and he also totally mismanaged the 
the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And unlike the black vote, which is locked into the Democrat Party, I, I don't think it would matter who the Democrats nominated. The black vote just lines up like Tory soldiers and votes for them every four years. But, you know, that's possible. That's, cert that's certainly possible that, you know, that's one of the driving factors, you know, for this. And, you know, perhaps they see themselves as, see their participation as a way of pushing more black people, you know, out to vote, you know, for crime bill Biden. I mean, I think that's a possibility. Yeah, brother, I almost was talking about the technology a couple of weeks ago. Um, I pulled this off the internet today. Amazon put up a Black Lives Matter sign. All of these performative behaviors synonymous with crocodile tears. Uh, you gentlemen can take off on this. If they were really concerned about black lives, you know, it seems like Amazon would provide protective gear, raise the minimum wage. If we're talking about in terms of wealth accumulation, $433 billion, the ruling elite has garnered during this COVID crisis or the elite element, as you refer to, brother, of the white supremacist dynamic they have increased their wealth. Uh, so what if they take Aunt Jemima off the shelf? And see, that's another demand right there. You know, black products being placed on the shelves, hiring more black people, increasing minimum wage, uh, you know, something more substantive as opposed to these uh, performative acts that uh, don't really constitute any real change. Mm. Yeah, I want to kind of get back to the point uh, before I dive into that. Um, this whole political game that happens every four years called a presidential election. Um, one thing I will say is black people, it's been proven over the last four years that black people can get more from Donald Trump than they can from Joe Biden. Joe Biden, as a vice president for eight years, along with Barack Obama, did less for black people than Donald Trump did for black people in his three and a half years or 3.75 or whatever you want to call it over these last 3.75 years. So it's not about supporting the American government or believing in a political system. But if you're in a situation where you can leverage a particular candidate to do what you want to get done, then it will make more sense to try to get it from that candidate because Joe Biden, as soon as he gets in the office, he's going to continue the plan of Barack Obama that's going to involve promoting homophilia, <laughs> it's going to involve promoting pedophilia and sex trafficking. Mm. And it's also going to involve pacifying black people and not supplying black, black people with any of the things that we want in this country. Now, the people that are pro-Trump and pro-Biden, my, my message to you is this, especially I'm speaking to the black people that are pro-Trump or pro-Biden. Uh, like Dr. Collins said, you know, the bullet or the bullet, like Malcolm said, the ballot or the bullet, either way, Either candidate that gets in, you're still going to have to deal with 
the assault on the African continent, which is going to continue no matter who the president is. And this is one thing that many politicians and many people who even speak out for Trump fail to deal with is that when you look at the foreign policy of America, it does not change no matter who the president is. So we know that Donald Trump is not the perfect candidate for black people, but in regards to getting things in this country, you'll probably have a better chance of getting them from Donald Trump than you will from Joe Biden. We look at Donald Trump's foreign policy track record. We can just look to Venezuela and see that he does not really care about the sovereignty of an individual country. When you're willing to go in and proclaim somebody who the people did not vote for as a president, as the leader of a country, that shows the arrogance of the United States of America and the president against that country. When you keep the sanctions in place on Zimbabwe, the same sanctions that were put into place by George Bush that were upheld by Barack Obama and still upheld by Donald Trump shows you that it doesn't matter who the president is, the foreign policy is not going to change. When you blast the general of the Iranian government out of his convoy and kill everybody in the convoy in a military airstrike, drone strike, it shows you the arrogance in the position of the United States in regards to their exploitation and their foreign policy against other countries. Right now, the Tanzanian election is coming up and John McAfee is running for president again. And right now that there are tensions between the U.S. and Tanzania because John McAfee is not the candidate that they want to be the president in Tanzania. So we have to remember these things and not be stuck in the birdcage of America and only look at how we're affected here, but look at the entire world and understand that we can't attach ourselves to this political system because all of it is bad for us. If you want to try to leverage with a president and get what you want, that's one thing. But don't emotionally attach yourself to the system. Don't become a fan of Donald Trump or become a fan of Joe Biden. Uh, just continue to try to leverage and get what you can get out of them. But still remember the ultimate goal, which is still liberating the African continent and liberating the African people. And when it comes to that, no matter who sits in the White House, they're going to be your number one enemy. Mm. Now, to your point, Jack, about the uh, the technology or the uh, uh, what do you call it? The, the, the Amazon uh, donations and the other corporations that are that are donating. Like I said before, I feel as though these corporations feel that they can move revenue in a specific lane that they can control. So for them, it's more of an investment than it is charity. And how they look at it is they can um, shift with this shift in the country in regards to George Floyd's death. And now people being comfortable talking about black holidays, talking about black lives matter and all of this. These corporations, which the majority of these corporations, people can say what they want. The majority of these corporations are ran by elite people who talk to each other. They all have an understanding of the direction that they want to go in for the benefit of themselves and those corporations. 
and they put together a plan and a strategy to make it happen. So this is it's strategic and it's planned. Now, sometimes you have a copycat organization where they look at how other organizations operate and then they try to implement the same strategies or implement the same procedures and plans. But in most cases, these cats, get, they get no conference calls and they discussing the direction that they want this thing to go in. And then they take it in that direction. And for them, I feel it's an investment that they can control and use the money to either funnel it to organizations that will pacify black people or also to black businesses that will align themselves with white culture. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens. A lot of these groups that get these funds are generally people that they can control. And the mm. people who don't want the strings attached, who don't want to deal with the control aspect of somebody telling you what to do because of the money that you got, those are the people that usually don't get it. So mm. I think that that's what, it, that's what that's going with that. You know, and it, it seems like they are donating huge sums of money but the amount of money that they are donating, and I just give you the Netflix example, is so such a small percentage of their total income. Uh, Netflix on Tuesday said it would invest in black-owned banks in an effort to help close the wealth gap between black and white America. The streaming service announced plans to deposit 2% of its cash, or an estimated $100 million, in the black-owned financial institutions and community development organizations, which have a better track record of lending to minority borrowers than the mainstream consumer banks. So the headline says they're giving $100 million, and $100 million is 2% of their, of their cash. Well, you know, $100 million into these black-owned banks, and the black-owned banks can then loan money to black businesses to start you know, start businesses or expand their businesses and, you know, hire, you know, some of our young people and get them off the streets, you know, uh, you know, that's all well and good, but let's, let's, let's understand, you know, what's going on. Don't, don't, you know, don't start turning cartwheels because somebody's giving 2%. Of course, 2% is not zero, but, you know, understand that, you know, all of, all of this is, 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 is designed, you know, to, absolutely pacify the community uh, because they don't want this spinning out of control towards a black power or black liberation movement, which it could have the potential to do depending on which direction it takes. I want to talk about this petition I started uh, several months ago, and I, I, I'm surprised myself that that it has reached the proportion. It's about an Alabama named Willie Simmons. He has served 38 years for a $9 robbery. Sort of sounds like George Lester Jackson in some ways. Um, I'm not saying his brother's a revolutionary or anything, but I'm just comparing the sentence. In 1982, Army veteran Willie Simmons was prosecuted under Alabama's habitual offender law. Let, let me say something here how these laws came about as long as american apartheid was in place 
these states like Alabama and Mississippi, Georgia, Louisiana, North Carolina, South Carolina, etc., didn't need these types of laws because the black population was virtually controlled by the laws of American apartheid. When American apartheid was forced to capitulate, the white supremacy dynamic had to regroup, or as Dr. Wilson says, refine its means of maintaining power and control. And this is, and one of the ways they decided to do this was by expanding the carceral state or what Michelle Alexander calls mass racial incarceration. So Alabama had a habitual offender law well, well before Sick Willie and Crime Bill Biden and those got together in the 1990s and, 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 and came up with three strikes and you out and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Mr. Simmons had three prior convictions, one of which was for grand larceny. He told reporter Beth Shelburne, and Beth Shelburne is, is wh where I got the information from. The other two were for receiving stolen property. At the time, Mr. Simmons had become addicted to drugs while stationed overseas. Have we heard that story before? How many people came, you know, people in my age group came home from Vietnam addicted to heroin? Many. So he was convicted of a first degree robbery and sentenced to life without parole for stealing nine dollars. Mm. How many people on Wall Street got convicted for stealing hundreds of billions of dollars and destroying the wealth, hard earned wealth of, you know, black people in this country? Zero. Zero. Nine dollars. Simmons has spent the last 38 years in prison. This is clearly a case of cruel and unjust punishment. Over the years, Mr. Simmons has filed several appeals without any legal assistance. All of his appeals were denied, and based on a 2014 change in Alabama laws, it appears he has no appeal options left. In the interest of justice, Governor K. Ivey should commute Mr. Simmons' sentence. Okay, so I wrote this, I, I wrote this, uh, created this petition, uh, you know, just because I believe what Dr. King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And to my surprise, uh, as of today, 2,813,516 people have signed. So we're pushing towards 3 million. And now, I, you know, I, I, I need to decide how to push this forward. I need to reach out to the family to let them know that somebody cares and, you know, see how we can go about putting pressure on Governor Ivey to commute this sentence. Clearly, clearly, clearly. I mean, there's just no, there's no grounds for anything as, uh, as barbarian and as, as cruel, as, you know, as draconian as this. But once again, why was this done? American apartheid was forced to capitulate. How do we control the black population of Alabama, of Mississippi. How do we do this? We put these we we put these laws into effect. So it's once again, Dr. Clark. All history is a current event. What did they do after Reconstruction? They took advantage of the Thirteenth Amendment, the section that says slavery is outlawed for all conditions except one. If you commit a crime, you can be put in slavery. So what did they do? They the white supremacists 
of the uh, defeated Confederacy. I always say they lost the war, but they won the aftermath. They created vagrancy laws. The vagrancy law says you must be employed. Okay, Mr. White Man, give me a job. No, I'm not giving you a job. You're a vagrant. Now go to jail. Mm. And now we create the convict leasing system. Oh, you come work on my plantation for 50 cents a day until you finish serving your time. You see, this is how these things just keep repeating. And so basically this was this uh, these habitual offender laws, and I'm sure they exist in, 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 in many states, particularly all of the states that were thriving under American apartheid, uh, they said, "Hey, look, we gotta we we gotta find we gotta find a way to control the population. This is this is one way that we are going to do it." So I say, all the listeners, if you have not signed, go on to change.org and look for, just do a search on Willie Simmons. Willie Simmons has served 38 years for a nine-dollar robbery, and and then I I gotta decide how to move forward with it. But wanted to make our audience aware of it, and I know we're running short on time. Uh. Excellent opportunity for me to segue and just chat real briefly as to how uh, these um, slave quarters, slave dungeons have been sanitized. There's been an attempt to sanitize and capitalize on um, what was a dungeons, uh, quarters of shame, degradation, abuse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Young lady who's a singer, uh, Jill Scott was given a plantation tour. She was told she could sleep in the slave quarters that had been renovated and made plush. <laughs> Jill responded by saying, you wouldn't have a vacation site made at Ossowitz mm. or Treblinka. You wouldn't make Treblinka a Dachau Wow. A, a bed and breakfast venue. Wow. So, you know, this just an interesting note as to uh, how people uh, have no shame in capitalizing on a shameful history in the uh, that we were the victims of. Mm. Mm-mm. Jill Scott probably will say if I slept in here, I'd have nightmares that the ghost of Thomas Jefferson is gonna come in and rape me. Absolutely. Wow. Yes, I, I found it very interesting the other day that um, Eddie Glaude was trying to uh, sanitize, for lack of a better term, the the legacy of Thomas Jefferson by uh, articulating some linkage between uh, Dr. King, uh, the statue of King, looking directly at, I guess, the Jefferson Memorial and... Uh, <laughs> holding him accountable or holding the ideals of America accountable. He still has hope in that moral change. Um, uh, uh, change can take place on the basis of moral suasion, I should say. Okay. We can keep doing the same thing, expecting different results. Insanity. Okay. What <laughs> something else I want to mention that's been in vogue lately. That's the Wilmington massacre. Of course, uh, you may want to talk about that. For years, you, you were uh, not allowed to research this. Uh, this is the story of a democratically elected government that was violently overthrown 
down in Wilmington. Wilmington was a prosperous city, replete with black entrepreneurs and elected officials. In fact, four blacks were sent to the U.S. Congress. Uh, what was created during this time, around 1897, 1898, was a fusion party of black and whites. It was said that they shared power in this multiracial configuration. Of course, uh, you can anticipate what would happen next. White supremacy stoked white anger, using the media, uh, the whole tricks used by Woodrow Wilson. Of course, I understand that his name has been stricken off many of the uh, buildings up at Princeton. A liberal but a racist, um, well, we can take off on this history. Uh, they used the media of black men threatening white women. In fact, it was said by one Wilmington official that if it takes lynching a black man a day, I say lynch. Okay, one newspaper in that uh, part of North Carolina read uh, white supremacy, of course, uh, uh, created a paramilitary unit. The groups intimidated at the polls. Uh, they uh, put forth what was known as a white declaration of independence. Uh, a gentleman of a prominent newspaper, African-owned newspaper, Alex Manley, uh, was threatened. He left town. His building was destroyed. And, um, you know, when I visit Wilmington, invariably I have to wonder how many black bodies lie at the bottom of the Cape Fear River. Uh, a story that has not been discussed enough. That's the Wilmington riots of 1898. Yeah, I wrote a blog post on that called Lessons from the 1898 Massacre and Coup d'etat in Wilmington, North Carolina. And my opening statement was, when the white supremacy dynamic went on a rampage against the African community in Wilmington, their white allies in the fusionist coalition were nowhere to be found. Maybe a lesson for the day, maybe not, but, you know, maybe these people making 150000 would grab their AK-47s and defend black people, huh? That hadn't been the history. That hadn't well, been the history. I mean, very few like John Brown and his sons. But, uh, yeah, it, that, 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 uh, that history, uh, it, it, an actual coup d'etat took place, uh, you know, on a city, the, the city government, uh, of uh, you know of a city in the United States and the federal government uh, refused to intervene. I, I don't know who the president was in 1898, um, but they refused. They refused to intervene, and you know these people had decided that you know they wanted to take control of this prosperous uh, you know community. Uh, let me just read this a little bit about the community. At the close of the 19th century, Wilmington was a symbol of black hope in post-Civil War America, the largest and most important city in North Carolina. It had a black majority population, 11,324 African-Americans and 8,731 whites. Many of Wilmington's most sought-after craftsmen were also black jewelers, watchmakers, tailors, mechanics, furniture makers, blacksmiths, shoemakers, stonemasons plasterers, plumbers, wheelwrights, and brick masons. What's more, the black male literacy rate wow. was higher than that of whites. The black male literacy rate. 
of black men in Wilmington in the 1890s was higher than that of white. Black achievement, however, was always fragile. Wealthy whites might be willing to accept some black advancement so long as whites held the reins of power. But black economic gains also provided many poor whites who competed with them and wealthy whites persistent, persistently encouraged animosity between poor whites and blacks in a divide and conquer strategy. So, uh, you know, people can go on the uh, Makaru Speaks blog and, and just look that up. Uh, and, 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 and read about it. But, but once again, I mean, here's a situation. Uh, you can go all the way back to Bacon's Rebellion. Uh, black people join coalitions with white people. And when the heat comes down, white people retreat into their whiteness, into the safety of their whiteness. And black people are left to fend for themselves. Uh, you know, these guys, you know, uh, black communities, you know, they had some shotguns, a few rifles and pistols. White militia came in with a Gatling gun. You know, a Gatling gun was a, a 19th century machine gun. And, you know, uh, I don't know how many people have seen uh, the new uh, Magnificent, not the new, but the latest Magnificent Seven movement, movie with Denzel Washington. And how, how devastating, uh, it gives an example of how devastating a Gatling gun could be. It was also used out in on the plains in the prairies of uh the western part of this country against the uh, indigenous people. So that's what happened. They decided to take over. I mean, they didn't want black people having all of this prosperity. And, you know, black people had formed this coalition. It was beneficial to uh, both whites and blacks that went in the coalition. But when the raw elements of the white supremacy dynamic and their institutional allies rose up, pitchfork Ben Tillman and his red shirts came up from South Carolina they even stopped the train that the governor, the governor was on a train traveling through Fayetteville. Uh, the red shirt stopped the train and went on the train and threatened to pull the governor off and lynch him hmm. if he didn't back down. So, I mean, that just goes to show you what you're dealing with. So any, anybody that's speaking the language of violence to the, to the raw elements of the white supremacy dynamic or to the white supremacy dynamic, period, Understand what Malcolm said. You're speaking a language they understand. Better have a strategy. And in the final analysis, blacks were charged as being the instigators. Yeah, and the white, yeah, the white woman's name was Rebecca Felton. And so they called all these white women Karens, but they should be calling them Rebecca Felton because... It was Rebecca Felton who said lynch a thousand a week. She was a um, politician from Georgia. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, Hank looked like she could hang a cemetery. With everything that's going on in the media, it's everything that's going on around us. We have constant barrages of information. The goal is to stay focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. We cannot allow usurpers and we cannot allow people who are not for that goal to step in and try to take over this movement. We cannot allow organizations like Black Lives Matter and other organizations who are really pushing another agenda to step in and take over the liberation and the empowerment of African people. And it's up to us, African people who really care about the liberation and empowerment of African people, to be on the front lines and to step up and handle business. 
This has been the African Liberation Media Podcast. You can check us out on all of the major platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. You can also visit our website, AfricanLiberationMedia.com, and you can find us on social media at African Liberation Media. BB for Hodier. BB for Hodier. BB for Hodier. Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not job, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. Uh, buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power. Uh, if it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. <laughs> if your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.